Before we get going, could you do me a massive favor and press the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast? You'll be actively helping the podcast to develop and grow, so I'll be really grateful. Vision and Graft, a career and resilience companion with Richard William Preisner. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Vision and Graft podcast, the aptly named Snowball Effect, when I'm releasing this episode in the height of summer. I hope everyone is doing all right. In the last episode, I announced um, a new tool that I've developed in association with Roscoe, which is a diffusion comparison tool. With that tool, I've made it so that filmmakers, cinematographers, and lighting professionals who use diffusion on lights regularly can have a quick access tool on the web to be able to compare different types of diffusion material. And I've also provided instructions in there to show you how to save it as a shortcut on your phone, whether that be iOS or Android. So yeah, if you want to check that out, it's at my website, which is rwpreisner.com forward slash diffusion. Or if you go to the Vision and Graft website, visiongraft.com, just click on the diffusion link and it will take you to that as well. Also, I just want to warn you that um, there's only three more opportunities to enter the competition to win a Roscoe mix book. It's really straightforward. You just have to go to the Apple Podcasts page and leave me a review. Let me know that you've done that and I'll enter you into the competition. Full terms and conditions are available on the website. So if you want to go and check that out, you can do. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to a very good friend um, who is a writer-director called Louis Laguiette. It's a good episode for aspiring directors and screenwriters and filmmakers in general. Anyone who's looking to make their first feature film and raise the money to do it. He made his first feature film in his early 20s, which was quite remarkable. And I shared an office with him for quite a few years, so I got to watch him fretting a lot about raising the money for this feature film um, and he raised a budget of over half a million plus to do it um, and and we went on and made the film together called Trendy and it, it's, it premiered at Raindance in 2017. Louis one of the most driven and resilient creatives I've ever met um, especially after witnessing him go through this process. We originally met at university along with a few other like-minded filmmakers in a kind of creative group and we all kind of went on to then make this feature film together really with Louis um, and Marilena Peruti who was the producer really with those two at the helm. But prior to this we shot a lot of music videos, a lot of short films, a lot of small projects together to kind of like warm us up for this but Trendy was a real, a real test of what we'd learned up to that point. And we talk about it quite a lot and how Louis managed to get the funding and get that film off the ground, which I realise is, is quite a big dream for a lot of filmmakers who start in the film industry. They get into it because they want to direct their own film and Louis actually managed to do it. So I, I ask him at length about how he did that because funnily enough, besides seeing him fretting when we were working together, I generally left that to him and didn't get too involved because it wasn't really any of my business. But now... Now the dust of the film has settled, I'm starting to pry a little bit more. So, without further ado, let's get on with episode 14, Snowball Effect with Louis Laguiette. So, first of all, congratulations on the latest project, which is a series of three short films that you've made for the French artist Mace. Um, and it's called, this is the best part, my French attempts at pronunciation. It's called Relé <laughs> V or something, <laughs> which means real life in English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Real V. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Real life. That was close. Yeah, pretty good, man. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So it's the years of sitting listening to you on the phone. I've still got it. Um, so yeah, I watched the final episode just before and I saw that in the space of a day, 
it's had nearly a million views. How does seeing those kind of numbers engaging with your work feel? Good. It feels good. And at the same time, I think we've had that conversation before, but it feels a little bit like you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. And I think it's the whole thing about the current you know, fashion in making audiovisual content is a lot of it happens online because that's where people watch stuff. And a lot of it is super exciting. And a lot of it is weird because you don't have that sort of tangible connection with people in the way they connect with the material. So what I'm trying to say is I know that the people who watched the series are people who are fans of that guy already, the artist. And so in a way, I know that they were already going to watch it. So yes, they have watched it. And I think what that's what's daunting is the fact that a lot of people have sat and watched my work. But at the same time, I also know that the positive feedback it's getting and the sort of popularity it's getting is really based on the fact that it's kind of already rigged. It's rigged for it to work, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I'm not, you know, of course, like I'm super happy that it happened, but I also know that it's not necessarily like incredible. It just means that, you know, it did the job it was meant to do. But at the same time, what's weird is even the good feedback, and that's a natural thing that a lot of people do, is even the good feedback is a little bit, you know that it's made behind a keyboard. So it's a good reminder that like all of this is so instant, it goes and you realize that like within the space of a few hours, you're just gone from the memory of the people who've watched that thing. And that's fine. And, you know, and it's funny because I think a couple of days ago, YouTube said that they were going to hide the not liking, dislike button. They, have, right. they still have a like and dislike like Facebook used to have. Yeah. Which is interesting. But, you know, it's also, it kind of shows you that like being booed and being like, getting bollocked for something you do is becoming like a no-no in our society. And I, I guess it's good. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to feel about it. I suppose as an artist, trying to get feedback on your work, having negative views as well as positive views, I'm sure are useful. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, for sure. And, and, and But I think it's more the fact that like, um, it illustrates something that we've realized with social media, which is that like the mass effect encourages people to voice their opinions in a way that they just go more extreme and they wouldn't if they were individuals. So like, yeah, there's a safety element being behind your computer screen and being in a, in a mob, in a crowd, you know, it's like, if you're in a stadium, a guy you hate does something like, fuck him, like whatever, like, you know, everyone shouts insults because then the crowd does it. And so it feels reassuring that you're part of the people that say that person off. But when you're, in the street on your own, if you were to see that footballer that you've been insulting about 10 minutes ago and just, just with him, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the guts to do it. And the same goes a bit online where you have two effects. You have the fact that you're, it's virtual, you're behind a keyboard in the safety of your room. And so on top of that, you're part of a mass and you can kind of gauge how people have been reacting to something already. Like very quickly, you can see what comments are going and it's, even the positive ones are also part of like, oh yes, let's all say that this it's amazing because it doesn't matter. You know, it's like we're not gonna get any problems going like, woo, it's great. So essentially, because of the popularity of the artists, because essentially these are three short films you made for the famous kind of rap artist in in France, you already had a kind of guaranteed audience for your work as well. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, meaning that like if it had been absolutely crap, then perhaps it wouldn't it wouldn't have had as many views as it did. But it's also something where 
just because it's him, we were still going to have a minimum amount of views that is better than most content on YouTube. But, you know, the same goes to like music videos. Day in, day out, day out, we see music videos that are absolute crap. Uh, music videos from very famous artists with massive fan bases. And they, they score a very high number of views. So I think it's a way to kind of say like views don't reflect as much as we think they do. They do reflect something and they do translate and prove some things, but they also have to be taken with a pinch of salt. So for you, what, what feedback in this context does resonate with you? I think the same as anything. It's like friends, people that I trust, people that I like, people whose work I respect people who have been collaborating with, you know, I remember that you sent me an email saying, oh, you know, that was interesting, that was interesting. And that's much more valuable to me than a comment online by someone, even though we had, like, it was funny, like, there was a few comments that strangely mentioned directing, which I was surprised by. They were saying, oh, directing is great. But I don't think these people, and I'm, that's not me saying that they don't know what they're talking about, but I'm just, I know that they don't necessarily know what directing really involves. And sometimes they say easily in a way, but it was interesting. And I always take that with more skepticism than I do when someone that I know comes to me and says, oh, that was good. I want to talk a bit more generally about your career as a whole. So tell me, first of all, like you're obviously a director and a scriptwriter. And what pushed you to want to become a director and scriptwriter? And how did you begin? And what's the journey been like so far? So that's something that I haven't thought about for a while. Um, what pushed me towards it, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things, but um, when I was eight or nine, some mates of my sister back in France were doing short films. When I was eight, they were probably like 25, and they were doing some shorts, and they needed a kid to play in their films. And so I ended up spending like you know two weekends acting in some short films like I was I literally had absolutely no idea what was going on but I do remember thinking oh it's funny because I didn't think I hadn't realized that like films weren't just like things that I would take out from a box and watch at home you know I didn't realize that some people were making them I just thought it was just like things you know that I could watch and so it was kind of an interesting thing to just see a camera some lights some people saying what do we do and trying to organize something so that there would be something on screen but I didn't really, I didn't really clock it. The next step for me was just like, I had like slightly obsessive behavior towards like watching stuff. So there was like a few films that I watched obsessively time and time again. Titanic was one. And then the next step was, I did some graffiti writing for many years in Paris and then in London. And the main thing that I enjoyed, as well as painting on the walls, was filming it, like filming me and my friends painting and then putting stuff together and editing things together. And so that was kind of a combination of things that got me to like the age of 17, 16, 17, thinking, oh, I want to make films. I didn't really know why, but I knew that I wanted to make films. I didn't really know what it meant. But I quickly understood that I wanted to be the guy who said what we filmed and to say to the people in front of the camera what they had to do as basic as that. That's how I saw it. And so that's why directing seemed to be a thing that, like when I first started to sort of properly read about what it was when I was like, yeah, 17, 18, it just felt natural to me that it was what I 
the sort of things that I wanted to do. Then I did, I did some internships on some films. I saw people directing. And so it, it came very naturally. I didn't sort of have a questioning about whether it was what I wanted to do. It just felt like this is, this is what I want to do. And so the next step, I guess, was when I was 18, right after my baccalaureate in France, so the equivalent of A-levels, I moved to the UK. And that was prompted by a conversation with a director, quite a famous director in France, because I was working on a film during the summer of my A-levels, essentially. I got an internship in the location crew on a massive French film, like massive. So the French film industry was the biggest film of the year. And it was directed by this guy called Olivier Marchal, who's like a huge sort of crime film director. And we found ourselves in the, in the train together, taking the train back from Lyon, where the film was being shot, to Paris. And the guy was drinking quite a lot back, back then. And so there was a bar in the train, and I sat there, and he was there. And we had three hours ahead of us just to talk. And it was really great. And I, and I chatted to him about a lot of things. But one of the things that he said that really sort of like got me was... Um, he said that he had refused a project that was proposed to him by a Hollywood studio, which was a, a crime film with Bruce Willis, who had loved his films and really wanted to work with him. And the contract was ready, he just had to go and make that film. And he said no, because he didn't speak English. And I remember thinking, fuck, that guy who's like, you know, the guy for crime films right now in France, who clearly has some of the influences that I have, which is American and international films and crime films he's limited by his language like his language doesn't allow him to take his ambition as far as he wants to take it and so I thought back then okay well that can't be me because like I really want to make films and I, I really want to I remember that on that film I was watching Reservoir Dogs a lot like the Tarantino film and I remember thinking you know it's the first time that this film kind of solidified in my head as a really good film and I thought like well, what if I can't do that then? Like, it means that I can only do a version of this in my own language. It's limiting. And so, anyway, that prompted me to move to the UK and do university, like, try and, and get a degree there. And that got me to Queen Mary, eventually met you. But the beginning was interesting because it, it just felt very... Um, and the beginning was super weird because the first few summers, I was really trying to get a film off the ground, like a short film. And thankfully, at Queen Mary, where we both went, there was quite a lot of practical production as well. So there was a lot of theory. It was a, a film studies course. It was mainly film history and, and writing about films rather than making them. But there was also filmmaking stuff. And so a combination of that and trying to get myself to just, you know, learn and teach myself about making films got me to start making some stuff and, and really solidified even more what it meant to tell a story through the film medium. So from university, what did you then go on to do? I made as, as many as I could. I failed with a lot of them. I did one in France review that was super informative because it went to some small festivals and really helped me understand as well what the industry was and got me to meet more people. And it was a bit like, eh, it's, all, it's all easy. It just takes like not sleeping much and something will happen, right? I didn't have much of an idea of like the sort of next level thing, but I was just like careless and just making as much as I possibly could. Then I finished uni with a short film that was half decent for his sake, which you shot. And that helped because it went to a few more festivals and it helped me get people to help me out with writing or getting a feature film off the ground. And so 
it didn't happen instantly, of course, but it was a film that I had started writing as soon as I arrived in London. I, I thought, okay, I need to, you know, I, there was a story that I liked and, and I wanted to write it. So I started writing it. It was very many, many years to kind of go from like a stupid piece of paper on which I was writing to like, oh, it's starting to become a screenplay. But so I finished uni with that short film. That short film got me the ability to start thinking, who do I need to contact to make a feature film? Who do I need to work with? And then in parallel, well, we got a studio together and the first few jobs that came my way were music video jobs. Because again, on the back of that short film, I got a couple of music videos, like the first music video that I made and the second, and they were not big salaries, but they were enough to kind of get me sort of floating about. And in the meantime, I continued to think about this project. And so I had this kind of weird obsession, which was, I need to make a feature film as soon as possible because all the directors that I've read about and that I like have this thing in common that they made a film early. And what I liked particularly about it is that half of these films are shit films compared to what these directors have gone on to become. And so I had this weird thing. I was like, well, it doesn't really matter that I make a good film. It just matters that I make one because it's going to teach me stuff. And it, it was also sort of a, a personal challenge of thinking I need to make a film. And thankfully I had a story that really interested me and obsessed me again, which was trendy. Uh, you know, this, this journey of this guy in, in East London, which was, I was basing on some personal experiences, but also drawing from a lot of different stories that I had heard around East London just was something that was really keeping me up at night. So I graduated in 2014 and instantly I started to write trendy and then made music videos and made a few like corporate jobs here and there, but very small things here and there. And then trendy we shot in 2016. Yeah. Well, was it not 2015 and 2016 or was it 2016, 2017? It was 2016, 2017, because we shot in 2016 and then we did pickups in 2017, about a year after, mm-hmm. after the shoot. And it premiered in um, September, didn't it, at Raindance? September 2017, yes, exactly. Yeah. So that went on like this. And, and obviously, I'm kind of brushing past that period between uni and shooting Trendy, but within it, there was a lot of different projects. Like I, again, some music videos, then I, uh, some other short films, I think. I cocked up a music video, which was a super interesting experience because it's a video that never got released and was a very frustrating thing because there was quite a bit of a bit of money involved, as in more money than there was ever involved in any of anything that I was making. So it was a good good lesson. But yeah, so there was a lot of like these things and then writing other things and getting opportunities writing, which was also a weird thing that happened without me sort of anticipating it, but one thing leading to another contacts in France got me a couple of jobs writing some stuff and it was small, but it was enough to make me realize that I could also just write because there was already the bubble of content was starting again. It was 2015. So people were already thinking that you needed to have stories. And so they would bet a bit of money on concepts. And so all in all that all got me going to getting too trendy and having enough in place that I could make it. But that, that in itself is a, is a journey. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's many journeys within this journey, and you've and you've now gone on to obviously you've written quite a lot of spec scripts, haven't you? And, and treatments and things as a scriptwriter. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a variety of different things because at first it was spec stuff, but it was also things where I got asked to just jump on some stuff where someone needed a push or a little bit of extra work on the script that was pre-existing. And then very different things happened where because of Trendy, someone told me, oh, do you have any stories? And someone in France, but it was a story that was, it's set across different countries and it's mainly English speaking. That guy was like, oh, that's good. Let's develop it. So that, that was the sort of first development contract that I got on a TV show idea. And that led to more and more stuff. And so now there's a variety of things. There's projects that I, as you said, spec projects that I just came up with and, and pitched to people. But there's also projects where someone came to me with an idea and said, oh, I have this idea. I'm a producer. Can you write something out of it? And there's other things where friends of mine, screenwriters, came to me being like, okay, I already have this project that's like written to that extent. Can you jump on board and continue and help me write it and help me develop it? So that's kind of the extent of the three. And is this both in English and French language? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I suppose that, that learning that you did early on is beneficial now for your career to like spread yourself a little further. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I've been capitalizing on the ability to write in both languages because it just means that I have access to more bigger market, as simple as that. So there's more producers that I can approach with like, hey, I can, I can tell the story. So it's a flawed way of doing things also because as a result, people cannot really pigeonhole you, which is something that is difficult for some producers because some producers really like to just know, oh, you know, she's the horror girl or he's the crime guy or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it gives me the freedom of not feeling like I have to abide by anything or not feeling entrapped into any one way or another. Yeah. Just to focus a little bit more closely on Trendy. Yeah. Obviously, it was your, your first feature film and mine as well, coincidentally. And what always blew me away on that was obviously we got a studio before you made that and I saw you like busily squirreling away, like working hard to, to kind of get the film made. You were also a producer on the film. And I was always blown away by the fact that you managed to raise the funds that were required to, to make the film, which is obviously quite a, a sizable amount of money. And especially at the age that you were, like it's a, it's a bit of a dream for a lot of university student directors who are coming out of university. Like you say, they want to come out and make a first feature and you managed to do it. And I, and I witnessed you work very hard doing it. Like I was like on the ground in the studio and on the set, like pre and mid production. So how did you like exactly go about fulfilling this sort of little mini dream at the beginning of your career? And how long did it take from you kind of first conceiving the idea and writing it to financing the film and then ultimately getting it made? So if I don't count the years where I didn't really know that I was writing a screenplay or that I didn't really know what I was doing with like writing a story, if we just take it from like, I actually started writing it in third year of uni. So that would be 2013, 2014. It took about three to four years from letters on page to it being on screen and being released. So the producers that you're referring to are Marilena Aruti, who went to uni with us and is a good friend of us. He's a super talented producer. And Bruno Vanini, who's a French producer, super talented as well, who 
joined me into the journey and obviously carried the project massively. And the main thing was basic and everyone has gone through the same thing, but it's a lot of failure before getting to getting the film made and a lot of doubt and fuck-ups and compromise all around until getting it made. But what strikes me about it is it's literally 100% of refusals or nearly 100% of negative feedback and negative answers to demands until one is positive and sparks another one and another one and another one and you have a snowballing effect that gets you to, okay, now the film is ready to be made. So you were sort of relentless in the face of negativity. Yeah, but also because I was a little bit, I think like a lot of other people that have any projects in mind, you do that weird sort of self, self-convincing self that this is worth it and that you're right and that people are wrong and that they're going to see. And it's a constant battle between moments where you're like, well, people are mostly right and I'm wrong. And then moments where you turn it around and you're like, well, people are mostly wrong and I'm right. And it's a constant sort of like, balancing acts and you know on a thursday you might be like oh i'm shit and everyone is right what i'm trying to do is shit and then somehow on the saturday night something sparks you turning that around and going like no actually it's a great idea and it's a constant internal battle but but in the case practically of trendy we had one yes that was instrumental which was just out of uni because this short film that i did with Marilena, we decided to go to Cannes Short Film Corner and show it to people in Cannes and try and get meetings to just go, hey, you know, we've got this film and we've got a script. And at first we went to see producers and we had absolutely zero success. But we had success with one person who was a script developer called Isabelle Fauvel, who was essentially someone who was a professional at accompanying projects from first draft to uh, producible draft. Uh, or financeable draft, I would say. So kind of a weird thing where she decides to accompany people and scout people for producers and, and labs. But also in our case, she was like, okay, I liked your short film. What's your feature film idea? Okay, it's interesting. I'll take you on board. You know, I'll help you until you get financed. And if you get financed, then you pay me a small fee. And if you don't, then fuck it, you know. So she doesn't earn massive amounts of money, but she sees a lot of projects see the light of day because she is super good and she decided to take us on board and that was just a small victory and that was followed by many many defeats of her helping us write the script the script getting better and better us still approaching producers getting refused any help and being told that it was shit and continuing and thankfully i had other things on the side because that was that was the way i was kind of making a living and at the same time I kept on going. Is like I wasn't just focusing on the negativity of trendy. I had small other small victories and small defeats in other projects that that just kept my everyday life not being just about no. It was about a lot of no's, but that's I think to be expected for anyone who gets into an artistic endeavor. But little yeses that kept me going and kept me happy. And then we got to a point where I think it was. We got a distributor involved in the film at a time when we didn't really expect it. And that was 2015, end of 2015, I think. And we got a distributor interested in the project. And that was the sort of new spark that lit the fire. And then after the distributor got interested, another actor, a new actor got interested, leading to another actor. 
and then another financier, and then another person, and, and it it snowballed in this way. After again, like everyone having said to us that it was a bad idea, it was a bad film, it would never see the light of day, it was impossible to make for that amount of money, all the different things, and that was like public finance bodies, private finance bodies, producers, distributors, actors, all sorts of people had said no to it until the first yes led to a smaller, another small yes, and another, another, another. And that, that got us to making the film. Was it kind of like um, once you got that first yes, it was kind of like a domino effect of legitimacy? Like the first yes, did that have an impact on the second and so on? Yes, to some extent. With still a lot of no's on the way, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So like, I'm just saying that, like, of course, it, it felt like a snowballing effect where we were still losing snow constantly as we were going or not getting some. But there was also something that I forgot to mention, which was super beneficial, was that the script won a prize at a festival called the British Sherman Film Festival, where one of my short films had played the year before and they had a script competition, and we won it. And it was in Channel 4. I don't know how I forgot it, because it was instrumental, but that was actually the first thing that sparked something. And the actual order was that price, then an actor said yes, then the distributor came on board, and then another actor said yes. Right. And the two main actors that I'm referring to are Alan Ford and Haluk Bilgina, who you know. And that gave us some credibility, just because they were older guys with long careers and the fact that they were saying yes to a project like this meant that somehow there was something interesting in the project, at least according to people who finance films. Yeah, in that respect, I should really say that festivals, in the case of films and script festivals, like festivals that have script competitions are super helpful. They can really boost uh, a project. It's interesting to hear how you went about that because although I was like on the periphery of, of what you were doing, I wasn't aware at the time you know, fully the ins and outs of it because, you know, we're just both getting on with what we're doing and I was just seeing you frantically having phone calls every five minutes. Um, But those were the days where we used to spend like seven days a week working. I remember there was days where we'd just be in that studio if we we weren't shooting something. It was like just every single day we were like working. Not very good. (laughs) Not No, not at all. I sort of thought that was how you were one would make it by like working that way. And I was actually going to ask this question a little later, but it feels like relevant to ask it now. Obviously at the beginning of our careers, that's a great example. We both pushed each other right to the brink many times, like the brink being like tiredness, physical exhaustion, you know, due to overwork. And, you know, we both witnessed each other hallucinate. I remember the time I was driving back from France and you half thought the um, assistant director was floating by the window when you were like half (laughs) half awake. And I had my moments too. And, you know, we pretty much reached collapse at different points. I remember you feeding me a sugar cube once and bananas when I'd reached the limit of what I was physically able to do. I realize now (laughs) that I personally and you have a much healthier approach to like your work life. And I want to ask like what impact this has had on you and how it's kind of changed as as you've moved out of that sort of younger way of living? You know, is it important that you've developed from that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of a weird thing because like I feel like this this period of time, although I would not recreate it because I don't think I could, first of all, I wouldn't have the stamina to do it, nor would I have the interest in doing it because it was too intense. It's still, I'm super happy that we did it and I did it because it wasn't so much a, a constraint as much as a, a desire to work more. It was like a finger, like I wanted to just 
be thinking about films constantly and to be thinking about how to write them and make them and and get some jobs and etc so it never felt like i was overworking myself it just felt like i was obsessed with something and i think there's a, a difference there because obsession is almost like a willingness to put yourself through something rather than like you know like we often hear about people who work in i don't know the events industry or finance or whatever that are like terrorized by a boss that like gets them to work constantly and they come back home and they worry and blah 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 i never felt like that i felt like i just had nowhere else to be than work in in the studio to get some stuff done but at the same time i remember that i made a conscious decision i think after first year of uni that i was like okay well my first year is over i have two choices i can either go on holiday like go back to france see my friends do nothing for the whole summer somehow and then get back to uni or i can work on some films or try and make some films and instant to me that like i much rather would make a film or work on some films and so it made me realize that the normal amount of holidays that you expect to have when you're a kid and especially a french kid because in france we have slightly more holidays than in england was just too much for me and that didn't mean like i didn't value holidays it just meant that it was too much like i didn't feel stimulated enough and that was a big moment for me because i realized okay well i do need holidays and i value holidays a lot and i remember we had some friends among you know you were among them who didn't take much holidays because you were working 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 and i remember thinking that extreme is not necessarily for me but at the same time i need to take less holidays because otherwise i'm not going to be as productive as i should be and so during that time between the end of uni and when we made trendy i had a real thing where i was like I can get rid of my weekends but gradually I was like at least a day rest or a day sort of like not being as intensely into work but the main thing was less holiday yet still a period of holiday and for me it was the summer and it was the times when I was going back to Costco and my family's from to see the whole family and it was usually 10 days or a week where I was definitely like absolutely cutting off from any sort of stressful thing and focusing on like resting and that's all i needed you know and except like obviously like seeing my family for christmas but like i didn't even need as many days but it was really like having that time was enough and it would allow me to do that thing where i was working constantly although saying that i've just remembered that the summer of 2015 i think i didn't go on holiday because i was like i can't i've got to we've got to make sure trendy moves through the summer but i think it still applies and then and then gradually of course like year after year i realized that I was actually becoming more productive by taking weekends. And again that doesn't mean like I always take a full 48 hours of not working during the weekend. There's still weekends where I work the whole weekend or weekends where I work like a day a week throughout the weekend or or weekends where I will work half a day or whatever but but I had this this thing where I was like I need to really not schedule stuff during the weekend so that if I do want to work it's my decision but I still need to preserve that. Obviously in what we do there's like a slight exception which is that when you shoot there's no more weeks there's no more days there's no more nights it just becomes a thing where something has to be shot and you just focus on that but like outside of shooting I definitely try to preserve a weekend because I realize I'm more productive when I can air up my my brain even though I will watch a film even though I will try and look at some art even though I'll just watch crappy TV at home it's still something that somehow informs my filmmaking 
I remember when we were in the studio, and I don't know whether you were subtly making hints about this to me, but you used to talk to me about the value you found in taking holiday, because I was just not taking any holiday then. I was still in like the go, go, go mindset. It's something that's stuck with me, what you said. It was about how you're not kind of like learning anything from your life or having the experiences that you can sort of bring back to the creative work if you don't have the break or live a life outside of what you're doing, you know? And since you mentioned that to me, like I started to really value and understand when I left London, because that's where we were. Like I'd go to Manchester for a weekend to see my friends from home or whatever, or go go on a holiday. I really started to feel the value of that. And I think it's been like a bit of a evolution for me personally. Like I've started now to feel that value even more. Like I just went to Rome. That trip was like, I've really, I've never seen the value in having a trip on my motivation and the way I want to push in my career and the direction I want to take. Like if I hadn't have had that trip, I would have, you know, I would have stalled at that point. Yeah. And and I think the funny thing is, um, I know that like for some people that are really extreme in, in their desire to make it or make some art or be good at any endeavor, that's like, a personal desire to get something done. It's hard sometimes to see that, but I, I genuinely think that like even tiny breaks, you know, even like um, artistic activities, like going to a museum or going to a concert or going to the theater or just natural activities, like going on a walk, like stuff like that. It's like, it's weird, but if you don't allow yourself to have these moments where you air up your brain and think about something else and fill yourself with other things than work, may it be enjoyable work or not, If you don't do that, you just tend to kind of obscure your vision and your capacity to make decisions and to be a human being, which is at the end of the day, the only way that you can make anything meaningful. And especially in like uh, filmmaking, I think, is if you're not, if you're a robot, you know, chances are you're not going to make something that original. And that doesn't mean you can't imitate and kind of get some shit done, but in the end, you'll cap yourself. Yeah. At a certain thing because you'll you'll just be a robot, you'll just be like recreating stuff, doing you know, training your brain to do algorithms rather than trying to think what can I make that's that's different. And that's the human experience. So again, it's a commonplace, but I do think that it's so important to constantly give yourself these small breaks. Going to the pub and having drinks an hour and a half, watching football, <laughs> things like that. It's like, but you know, some people tend to not do that, or some people tend to not do that enough. And I think it's super important to do it. I think something that's dawned on me recently is how important it is to be inspired, which is obviously it's a difficult thing to quest for. But like, I'm in the process of sort of like slightly rejuggling the structure of my career at the moment. And I'm like, I've learned that I need to be inspired. It's it's actually like vital for producing artwork, essentially, that's like of the standard that I want to and that's like, will take me in a direction that I want to go, you know? So I'm now kind of scheduling places where I know I can get inspiration, like going to galleries and seeing more art. And like you say, going out in nature and things like that, like it's it's vital because I, I literally see how my ideas now stem from those experiences. Like I can see, like on the trip I went to Rome, I, I had an idea that's that was a bit of an epiphany. And I've come back with it. And it's kind of like something that I'm quite fixated on now as a result of that quest for inspiration. And when I was younger, like when we were younger, I just didn't understand the value of this at all. There's no better time than now, I think, that to start giving yourself those breaks and having that ability to like live your life and um, feel inspired. Competition time. 
If you're enjoying the conversation, please can you do me a favor and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? It's super easy to do. And if you let me know you've left a review using the Get In Touch page on visiongraft.com or by sending me a message on the Vision and Graft Instagram at visiongraft, you'll be automatically entered for free into one of the monthly draws to win a Roscoe Mixbook digital swatch book. This very useful tool enables you to pre-visualize colored gels and LED colors, and they're really useful for those working in film, photography, or lighting design to plan which colors they could use in their lighting. I use mine all the time in my planning, and I couldn't be without it. Spread the word if any of your mates would be interested in getting their hands on one. The competition is free to enter. If you really want a mix book and you'd like to increase your chances, if you repost any of my posts on the Vision and Graft Instagram to your story, I will add an extra entry into the competition for you if you let me know that you've done that. The last date for entry is midnight the 31st of August 2022 and I'll contact the winner directly to arrange their new mixbook delivery. The competition is only available to residents of the UK, EU, USA and Canada but if you'd still like to leave me a review if you're outside of those areas I will very much appreciate that. Full terms and conditions are available at visiongraph.com. Good luck with the competition. Now back to the show. You took a break after your first feature, Trendy, to go and study a master's at Columbia and return to formal education. Why did you choose to do that? And what benefit um, do you feel that's had for you and your career and your growth as a creative? Yeah, I mean, the way it happened is probably by the time when Trendy had premiered and hadn't been released yet. And there was a couple of things that kind of happened. I started to take more corporate jobs, namely uh, editing, because I had edited Trendy or co-edited Trendy, and I had edited all my previous short films and music videos. So I was I had some competence in editing. So I could edit as far as like corporate films go. We share that skill set. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Putting together just a fixed shot for that's like an hour and a half fixed shot and calling it editing. <laughs> Although, don't get me wrong, you're a better editor than I am. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I can do the odd corporate. I've got the corporate skills. But back then I was like, I started to earn a bit of money. And even though it wasn't a fortune, it was enough to start to put me a bit in the money trap <laughs> because it was like money. You know, I was affording a decent living through like just editing corporate stuff. Just to interject quickly, just for those who aren't aware, the money trap <laughs> is where you start earning so much, a certain amount of money that you get used to it and you can't sidestep into doing anything else because you're kind of trapped in that, that income bracket. So it makes yeah. it difficult to change your mind. And often it's, it's doing something that is not your primary goal. <laughs> so in my case, editing corporate stuff. And so there was a combination of this, then actually weirdly having writing opportunities that started to come my way, but that I could foresee being like long haul stuff because as a lot of people that work in TV or film, especially the writing side of things, know in development projects in TV and film are usually very long. They take a long time to happen and to go from page to screen. And so in my case, I had a couple of things that had been optioned, but I was like, okay, I can see that this is going to be a four-year endeavor. And I, at that point, I think I hadn't been directing anything since Trendy. So, you know, I wasn't doing what I was doing when we had the studio. So that time between university and Trendy where I was constantly directing stuff. I had a music video here, a music video there. 
shoot, you know, shitty thing that we're doing together at some point, me helping you on something corporate, whatever. Like I was constantly shooting them and, and I hadn't been shooting for a while. And so I kind of found myself in a thing where I was like, okay, I've made this film. So I've proven something to myself and I'm, and I'm happy with it in spite of the fact that it's imperfect. And I'm kind of thinking, have I got all the skills that I need? And one of the things that dawned on me is like, even though we had studied film, I knew a lot of things about how to make films without actually knowing why I knew them, if that makes sense. So I'd acquired some skills that I had no sort of method around. So I knew how to direct, but I didn't really know what directing meant really and, and how the different styles and approaches to it were. I knew how to, I thought I knew how to write a story or write a script, but yeah, I had not much of a formal methodology around writing a script. I just, you know, I was imitating putting stuff together to produce something. And so I realized that like I had a desire to try and experiment again. And at the back of my mind, I'd always had that desire to study film in America because again, I was massively influenced by the American film industry. And when I was 18, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to America and like make films and, and study film and it'll be great. And I, very quickly that dream kind of went away because real life happened and London happened and it was better for me at that time. And I loved it and it was super stimulating. So this thing kind of went away. But back then it kind of came back out because I saw there were some opportunities to take part into workshops. And so I saw that there was an opportunity to potentially apply for a master's. And I thought, well, you know what? If I don't do it now that somehow I have the opportunity, I have a portfolio, which is usually how you get into these masters is you, you need to have a bit of a body of work or at least something crazy to, to tell people. And in my case, it was having accumulated a bit of a portfolio and I realized that I could apply and it could be an experience and I could get out of my comfort zone and I could get out of the money trap and I could certainly go into a place where I would move to a different country and get back into the nitty gritty of like, doesn't matter that I've made a feature film, I'm back to square one and like trying to make small short films. And it was incredible. So I, I got in and I was, I was super lucky about that. I managed to sort of work out some financing and then I got there and it was incredible. It was really like a, an amazing experience of going back to experimenting with directing. So going back to me having a camera on my shoulder, being with an actor in a room and trying to tell a story. And as far as script writing went, actually understanding why we tell stories the way we tell them and why there is a sort of classical way of telling stories and then all the other ways that like make up for the general storytelling world of novels and plays and films and series and all sorts of things. But why there is a sort of like formal classical way and why does our brain and our heart and our emotions, how do we receive all these things and make, make sense of stories? And that was what I got from, from that degree. So it's kind of like learning script writing and storytelling as a craft. Exactly, exactly. As a craft and giving yourself a method and going beyond, because it's so possible today in any form of art, but film is a good one because it's, you know, it's, you can hold it, you can watch it, you can pose it, you can go back, you can... I mean, I guess that, that applies to a few different art forms, but this one specifically, I feel. You can learn, you can imitate. It's quite easy to actually get pretty far by not being that creative if you're smart enough to hide imitation behind style. Mm. I, you know, I realized that 
there's something so interesting in the actual value of going back into the roots of how people imagined that they would teach filmmaking to people and, and how it's because the great thing about this degree is like there were people like me who had done a lot of films before at least tried a lot and then other people who had not made a film in their life but had just incredible life stories and putting us together was super interesting because you had people who were like me had a mind that was a bit corrupted by oh no but this is the way I used to do it or whatever but at the same time had experience and then other people who were like totally fresh but lacked the basic knowledge of how to make a story in film. And so the meeting of the two was super interesting and, and really blew me away and luckily got me jobs, which was kind of a strange thing, but it just got me a little bit better at screenwriting and it got me mostly TV, like writing for TV jobs. And that was a big, big step for me. Do you mean that by like the experience that you gained or... Or instead having um, Columbia as like a, a stamp on your CV, did that help pull in the work? Yes. I mean, that was more of a sort of opportunistic reason at first why I also got there. Because I was like, one of the things that struck me with Trendy was that the producers and I were really, we didn't belong to like a club or like a crew or like a family. We were really like, pure independent, <laughs> really off, you know, we had done stuff with people, but we had a network of filmmakers, fellow filmmakers that we made films with, but we weren't, we didn't have a stamp of any kind. And Trendy was made purely independently. And although in the end we found a distributor, in the end we had actors, we still weren't from like a, um, a track, you know, we, we didn't belong to like a specific track, like some people do. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll go to Colombia and then I'll have a stamp. But in the end, I don't think it's that much of that as much as like making you meet people that are like-minded, which I think is a big, big thing. Because if I think about just myself, I know a ton of people in London that make films. Yes, true. But I don't know that many director screenwriters. I know a lot of DPs. I know a lot of ADs. I know a lot of costume designers, production designers. And they obviously the people that I work with on a daily basis and they're my colleagues and friends and, and they inspire me a lot, but I don't meet that many people exactly like me, like slightly obsessive writer directors who are like, don't really know why, but they want to make films because they are hard to find or like they're working on other projects when you are. And like, you know, you don't really, you don't really get to meet them. It's just as simple as that. Also because I don't crew that much on films not anymore at least and so I didn't have that opportunity to meet a lot of other directors and what Columbia did was really giving me that like making me meet a lot of like-minded people that were doing exactly what I was trying to do and that's really refreshing because it makes you realize that you're just one in many and that you should calm yourself down about if anyone thinks that they are important <laughs> it's a good reminder that they're they aren't because there's a lot of people doing exactly the same thing but it's also a good way to just also find some support in other people because the support that I might get from you as someone that I work closely with, which is invaluable, isn't the same support as someone who has done exactly the same things. And like some of the conversations that I had with the people that I met at Columbia was super enlightening because I was like, oh my God, like we've actually thought exactly the same things at the same time throughout our careers about doubts, about thinking, oh my God, you know, am I, am I fucking this up? Am I shit? Am I good? Am I great? And, you know, it's like, 
you go through all the same things and you have people who have really been at the, in, within the same exact struggles as you have been. That's great. Because we've not really chatted about that much before. And it's great to hear that you had such a positive experience. You've mentioned before to me, and I've witnessed it in person, how on set, whilst you're directing, you've kind of sought to create an atmosphere of kind of togetherness and unity and like a team. Can you explain why that is and how you go about doing that? I think it's really down to personality, but I prefer, I'm fully aware that as many ways to direct as there are directors. So everyone has a different way of going about it. But I've heard before that there's a lot of directors that are hard to deal with and maintain a different atmosphere. I know that some people are terrifying and or very demanding. I know that some people are like almost so relaxed and so like inviting that they become abusive in the sexual ways or other ways. And you know, they they overstep the mark of like familiarity and, and being close to people. I know that some people put music, for example, like a basic thing. But in, to me, I think the team thing is more the fact that like it's the easiest way for me to work, to feel like people know that I respect them. And as a result, they have to respect me back. Because it's difficult to be a dick to me if I'm super nice to you. Some people still do. And in that case, I might bite back. But mostly my experience so far has been that like, if I treat people nice, they treat me nice. And that goes from like saying hello in the morning to actually fighting for my idea and the shitty thing that I'm asking, because I still am asking shitty things. And like, oh, can you get this specific thing? Or can you make sure that this arrives at that time? Or can you make sure we have that sort of dog or whatever? And it's like the fact that I create that feeling that like, we all do it for the same purpose. Like one of the big things that I do is, and I think it's super important, is to never say my film, you know, always say our film because it's our film. You know, it's always our film. It's always our thing. Like it's, it, it never belongs to one person. There might be a thing where the director or the screenwriter or the actor are the guardians of specific aspects of the film. And sometimes the director's like the story, but at the end of the day, the film is really a collective creation and, it's so much easier to just make people aware that like at the end of the day, they can claim it as their film in their own specific way, the same way that I can. But clearly, you know, it might not be my, I don't know, if, if we've shot in a forest and we created the forest and trees, they might not be my trees. They might be the production designer's trees, but it's still our trees for our, for our film. So it's way easier to get things done when I was involving them into my fantasy and my dreams and my, the things that I want, my desires. And, you know, that's the, the team thing always does that, I feel. Yeah. What position do role models have in your life as a director and scriptwriter? Well, I mean, massive. I think um, I read a lot about other people's careers. Um, slightly less now than they used to, but four or five years ago, I was reading a lot about people's career. I was trying to understand how they had come about, what they had done to try and get projects off the ground. And it's still something that fascinates me. But at the same time, I think there's an interesting thing about film where you realize that it's actually the competitiveness and the attributes of why you're successful or not are actually not working. Like they have, for example, they have nothing to do with sport, you know, sport there's a winner and a loser unfortunately and even in sport people say well you know the most important thing is to actually take part in your thing but in film i think it's it's even more so the case that like you've got to realize that everyone is unique 
the role models that you look up to are you're never going to be them. You're never going to even be remotely close to them. May they be very successful filmmakers or very confidential, anonymous filmmakers that whose work you admire. You can't be like them. You can't resemble them even slightly. You can potentially imitate them, but again, that's not going to satisfy you for very long. So I take it with a thing where I remember this filmmaker that I really love used to say, oh, I used to want to be Stanley Kubrick. And then I got, I started to feel much better about my work and be much more successful in my work when I actually realized I could never be Stanley Kubrick. I could only be the best at what I do, the specific small thing that I do. And then the guy went on to become a very, very successful director. And for me, I think that's kind of the main thing is to just realize that like all these role models that they're like, they're fun to read about and to know about just because they, they give you sort of indications of what you, the way you could react into when you reach the moments where they had to make important decisions. But at the end of the day, everyone has their own path and you can't plan what's going to happen to you. And so it's a weird sort of guesswork where you've got to learn, learn the tricks by reading about other people and forming yourself about the industry. But at the same time, bearing in mind that like, it's never going to be as you plan it. Like, you know, YouTube didn't exist like 15 years ago. And now it's like something where so many people, it's like massively important in their career. MTV used to be that 15 years ago. And today, who gives a fuck that you have a, a music video on MTV or like a, anything on MTV? It's like, in that way, the path that you're trying to build is really, you can't just imitate event to event what someone has done. So role models are great, they're inspiring, they're comforting sometimes, but they also... They're only useful for a certain amount of things. Can you tell me about the biggest hurdle that you've faced in your career and what you've done to manage that? I always, I rarely think that something is going to be the end of everything. Like I rarely think, oh my God, if this fucks up, then I'm done. I'm, I'm often stressed when I think, oh, this could be a great thing if I do it well. But I rarely think if I don't do it well, it's the end of it all. Because I know that like, things turn around so fast that like, again, opportunities come in, the, in ways that you never expect them to come. So, but a big hurdle, I don't know. Like I remember when, so I, was, I mentioned before that, that music video that I did, which never came out. And that was a super interesting experience because it felt like it was one of the first jobs that I got, like someone seeing something I had done and saying, Oh, that's good. Let's contact him to get that job done. As opposed to, someone has seen your work, thinks it's good, they meet you and then they go, oh, you're a nice guy, let's think about collaborating and that translates one day into a job. Like That was a direct, like totally anonymous person saw that thing, got in touch with me somehow and said, here's a job, do you want to do it? Without even knowing me. And it was a thing that had a fairly good budget and it was an, an exciting project and it was a professional one as far as I was back then. And it was a total disaster. The video really wasn't good. And my work, it was my fault. And it was really the decisions that I had made throughout the process were just weren't good. If it's the project that I think you're talking about, I think some of the decisions that I made throughout the project weren't, weren't good either. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I think when it fucks up that much, it's really the director's fault, I think, anyway. But it, and, and I obviously have all the sort of backstory of why it came to that. And the main thing that I got from it was that my big mistake was that I said yes, I wanted to please people. And it, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't want to please people because that's life. You know, you want, you want to be liked. Like there's some weird 
personalities around and characters that don't that really want to be hated and that's fine but like i think the majority of us kind of want to be like to some extent some of us less than others but in the end it's like i don't think the majority of us are thriving for hatred but in my case i said yes too many times and i because i was so happy to get that job and anxious to do well and anxious to be liked by the artist music video we're doing i ended up compromising a lot on my original ideas and and being a people's pleaser and it made me realize that as a director but i think it applies to a lot of other jobs that's not what people ask of you they hire you because in a weird way because they are schizophrenic and they want the constraint because they want the results so they want something good and they hire you because they don't know how to do it and and they're ready to be asked stuff so that you can do your job well and so it was a big lesson because I was like, on some things I need to put my foot down more. And it's not because you get a big opportunity at work. It's not because you think, oh my God, you know, great thing. Like it's a new thing that I've never had before and they're trusting me and I'm great and I really need to make them happy. It's like, sometimes it's not about making them happy. It's about trusting yourself first, going like, I'm here for a reason. Let's just stick to my guns. And it's not easy. But I feel like it's the first time that I realized sometimes I need to hit people with just this is how it has to happen. And I shouldn't be afraid of conflict, you know, very far away from disrespectful conflict. So it can go hand in hand with my thing of trying to make everyone part of the team. But it's like there's still some concrete things where you have to say no and yes and not being afraid of saying no, even if you do it with a lot of politeness is important. So if you go back to when you first started your career and give yourself some advice about how to approach the most difficult challenges that you've faced, what advice would you give yourself? This thing of saying that like at the end of the day, nothing is definitive and you shouldn't be too afraid of people because I think there's a big tendency in, in the film industry to scare people that they're never going to work again that you know they, they're shutting doors on them so they, they're burning bridges if they do that and, and all bridges are going to burn and it's going to be over and it's never ever ever the case that doesn't mean you should be a dick because if you do bad things that will haunt you you know if you're sexually abusive or if you harass people in any way that sticks and, and you'll be hunted down and you won't have work but what i'm trying to say is like fucking up or making bold decisions or sometimes overreacting to the way someone treats you or sometimes saying no to people, it's never definitive. So I'm not, you know, I'm never saying that you should, again, never be disrespectful to anyone. But I think that, like, it's important sometimes to realize that, like, you might miss opportunities sometimes. You might say no to stuff. And in the instant, it might feel shitty. And some people might not like you anymore, but the industry is vast and you'll find your own team and your own side of the industry where you feel comfortable and so i think it's a good thing to remind yourself that like sometimes you will say no to projects sometimes you will make harsh decisions sometimes you will abandon some things or people and it's not the end of the world like you're always gonna if you're true to yourself to some extent and honest with what you want to achieve you'll always find a way to get back to it what is the best advice you've ever received I think mostly it was very specific, but it applies to a lot of decisions that you can take in a career. Is it going to be that piece of advice my mum gave you that time you went around to the house? (laughs) That's a very good one. So that's a very good one. That's Will's mum told me, by trying to do too many things at once, he doesn't achieve anything. And so that was basically, don't overload yourself or like, 
pick your moments when you want to overload yourself because if you keep just piling on projects and taking too much on, you might not achieve something. You might not achieve anything. You might just do a lot of half full or half empty projects. And so sometimes it's better to go for quality rather than quantity. But it, the way she said it and the moment she said it at really stuck with me and became my, uh, my motto. But the other advice that I got, which was super interesting, was about trendy. One is like directing specific and will be useful for anyone who wants to direct. And the other one is actually more like a general thing. The general one is the most important thing about a feature film is that it gets made, meaning that it doesn't matter that it's, chances are you're not going to make 2001 Space Odyssey as your first film. But it applies to the next ones, which is like the most important thing about projects is that it gets made and it happens. The reality is like sometimes you're going to have great surprises where people are going to think the film is fucking great. But at the end of the day, what matters is that you've made it and you move on to the next one because that's really, that's really the most important thing. And of course, you want to thrive for excellence and quality and great stories, but if you keep paralyzing yourself on it has to be the best thing, you might not make it at all. And sometimes it's important to just go, go and not think too much. Like, am I making the best thing ever? Because you most likely you're not. That doesn't mean it's not good. That doesn't mean it's not going to find its audience. That doesn't mean it's not going to touch people. But most likely the sort of thing that you imagine is the best thing isn't what you're making. And that doesn't matter. And the second advice is really directing specific. And it's someone that told me that a producer when I was preparing 20, they, were, they told me, okay, it's your first film. So chances are you're going to have to compromise on everything, most things, if not everything. And you're going to be dissatisfied with most things. But what you need to do in order to make this worth it is you need to pick one thing and be absolutely uncompromising on one thing and never give in on this specific aspect. It can be cinematography, it can be production design, it can be performance it can be script it can be monitor so i got that advice really well and i and i chose performance but the main thing was that advice can apply to a lot of first features and first short films and first music videos and stuff like that it's like being uncompromising and at least one thing i picked performance and i was super happy to have done it in the end because at least people praised the performance the performances in the film and i think they are a really important factor for any films but it can be something else but it's it's important to sort of focus on one thing and do it well my final question what gives you hope uh, what gives me hope is that i feel that the world however fucked up it seems and however dark at times and violent and extreme undeniably is getting a bit better than it used to be so i'm sure that like if you were born in 1901 it's better to be born now even though there's really fucked up things happening i think that your existence your day-to-day life is a bit better now than it used to be i firmly believe in that and i think history can teach you that with just the amount of conflicts and horrible things that have happened i feel like we still have horrible things happening but i think arguably there's slightly less of them and that kind of keeps me hoping that, that we tend to go towards a society where there's going to be less and less. There's always going to be some, but there's going to be less and less and less. I love your kind of logical and scientific approach to uh, your view on hope. It's, uh, 
it's like evidence-based. <laughs> it's like the first time I've ever yeah. had a response that's like evidence-based. I like it though. That's kind of like, it's, I'm a logical guy. You, you know me. So I'm like, yeah, I can see. I can see. I can understand Louis Hope. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting to me. There's like a million things I could ask you um, and topics that we could cover. And perhaps one day in future, I'll get you back on the podcast and we'll chat more about various things. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for sharing like everything that you have done already. I'm sure it'd be really useful, especially for people who are like aspiring to make films and first time directors, etc. So yeah, and I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll put everything on the show notes, all the links to various things that link to Louis. So yeah, thanks a lot, man. And uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you, man. See you soon. Find us online at visiongraft.com and for updates, follow Will on Instagram at visiongraft.